welcome to the Intuitive Insights podcast series. I'm Nina Lockwood, founder and director of Intuitive Interim and Executive Search. Throughout this series, I will be sharing engaging conversations with talented leaders from across the UK transport sector. Today, I am delighted to welcome Mark Hopwood, Managing Director of Great Western Railway, back in situ after a 12-month tour of duty at South Western, to episode 10 of Intuitive Insights. Many people I speak to tell me that they fell into their career in the railway, and once they were in, that was that, they were captivated. Mark definitely didn't fall into it. His earliest memories of his love of rail is at two years of age. I loved my conversation with Mark, and if you have any interest at all in the railway, I am confident that you will enjoy it too. Good morning and welcome, Mark Hotwood, Managing Director of GWR. It's an absolute pleasure to welcome you to the Intuitive Insights podcast. Um, coming live from your signal room, I see. So, uh, pleasure to have you here. Um, I've known you for a few years now, Mark, and um, I would have to say you are one of the most knowledgeable people in the industry in terms of of what's going on. And I think that if we cut you in half, you'd have railway running right the way through you. Um, There's a clear passion for what you do and and all things transport, actually. Um, I'm going to start off uh, in that time-honoured way for this podcast and ask you to share your career story with us, please. I'm keen to know why the railway... How did you get into it and how did you get to where you are today? Well, uh, thanks so much. It's a, it's a great uh, honour, Nina, to be uh, here. I think this is the emerging as perhaps the closest thing to the Graham Norton uh, show that we've got in the railway industry. So it's a real honour to be uh, invited along. Um, well, the railway industry for me, um, I mean, it's not a big secret, but just in case uh, anyone hasn't twigged, I've got quite a strong interest in the railway. So I've always... Um, had that interest, I guess, from um, the earliest recorded point, I think, was when I was about two and I lived uh, lived uh, to the south of Manchester, actually, Whaley Bridge. My grandparents took me down to the railway line and they uh, they tell the story and it, it um, grew up from there, really. I used to visit um, my grandparents in South Wales and my grandfather would not even allow me to step foot in the house until I'd recited every station from Cardiff Central to Ostradronda in the correct order. Um, I could probably still do it today, but I won't bore you with that. Um, and my, my mother didn't drive. My father worked abroad quite a bit. So um, we used we used the trains and it became a, an interest and a passion. I did, um, I did flirt with the idea of the... Uh, airline industry, but I did have an operation on both my eyes when I was very young uh, to rectify squint. And I remember my last appointment, I was told, um, you're all sorted, Mark, you can do whatever you want, but you'll never be an airline pilot. So, um, so I, and it's probably just as well, actually, for the safety of the flying public that I've never been an airline pilot. So, um, so I was always interested in the railway and that, that interest uh, obviously grew and as um, and as so during uh, my time at school, I mean, I the biggest row I ever had with my parents uh, was about whether I was going to leave school at 16 and go to work or whether I was going to carry on and do A-levels and go to university. And that, that debate took a few twists and turns. But I was very lucky, actually. I went to um, the Royal Grammar School in High Wycombe. They were very supportive. And um, uh, like most teenage boys, I got involved and ran the Model Railway Club at at school and earned lots of profit. But I also got a letter um, from the British Railways Board. One of our governors was um, 
uh, a key person in the BR board, and he set me up with a week's work shadowing uh, when I was in the sixth form because uh, my father had put his foot down and said, you're not going off to work at, at 16. So I was studying my, my A-levels, my economics and politics, geography and history, and I did a week at Reading with the area manager's team. I shadowed uh, a lady you may have met, Sarah Kendall, who's worked in... A number yeah. of high-profile jobs. So Sarah was assistant area manager. She'd just come off the BR graduate training scheme, uh, and she'd obviously upset someone because they uh, they pinned me along with her for a, a week, <laughs> and we did a number of things. And I went up to the signal box in Reading uh, to see the Royal Train uh, come through with the uh, the area operations manager, and. Um, I'll tell you a quick story because one of the signalers up there was a guy called Dave Davison. And um, when I was MD of Great Western, uh, to start with, Dave was one of my duty control managers. So um, he always used to tell this story about this sort of snotty 16-year-old kid turning up uh, in the signal box. And I actually arranged a, uh, a week's... Uh, work experience for my daughter not so recently just before dave retired and um joanna wants to work in finance and she went uh, up to the finance team and they took her into the control and dave was sat in the chair and uh, he said to her, have you got any questions then? And uh, she was asking about some of the disruption. And she said, uh, how much will this cost in Schedule 8 then? And she said, well, we know whose daughter you are then. So, uh, But Dave did say to me <laughs> that it was uh, a sign that he was due to retire, the fact that I'd rocked up with my daughter for work experience. So that 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 led to a, uh, a job offer. And uh, uh, initially, it was just a job for the summer, Nina. So I just went there to earn a bit of money. I had a place at the London School of Economics, and I was going to head off to university. But I actually messed up one of my A-levels. I'd probably spent a bit too much time chasing uh, trains and not enough time studying. So I did very well in my politics, not so well in my geography. So uh, I uh, I decided to stay on for a year, reapply. Um, and uh, I got a place at um, Essex University, but I also got promoted from my first job in the railway, which was the, the Telephone Inquiry Bureau in uh, in Reading. And that's where it all started uh, on the, the 26th of June. And I've uh, I've still got, actually, uh, my, uh, my 1989 wow. timetable and my 1989 fares manual, uh, because that's what we used wow. in those days to um, answer questions about um, how much it cost and what time the trains uh, went and um, I've always had a you know an emotional attachment to that part of the uh, the job um, I actually went out to India um, a few years ago to visit the National Rail Inquiries office and they were very perplexed when um, this top managing director sat down in one of the chairs and started answering the calls and giving people information and, and I did that for a few calls and I managed okay. And the next call came through in Mumbai and it was a help point call from a little station in the Cotswolds at Finstock. And it was my very strict uh, station manager, Irish lady who's now retired called Teresa Cisse. And she was testing the help points. And I, uh, I said, hello, Great Western Railway uh, help point. How can I help you? And she says, Teresa Cisse, the station manager, I'm testing the help point. And I said, it's great to hear from you, Teresa. It's Mark Hopwood here in Mumbai. And she said, don't you get funny with me, young man, she said. So that was, uh, that was revisiting the job uh, a few years um, 
a few years later uh, doing the, the job in perhaps a different way. So I, I was promoted into the ticket office and then promoted again into the traffic and customer services office. And then having got my place at um, Essex University to study politics, I, uh, I wrote out my resignation letter and I went up to see the area manager and said, well, I really am leaving. I'm off to university. Uh, so he said, uh, go away and take your silly little letter away and come back and see me tomorrow morning at nine o'clock. So I went and saw him at nine o'clock and he had a, another letter for me, which was uh, headed up university retention of conditions. And it's probably one of the most valuable letters I've ever had because British Rail agreed to send me off to university. I could keep uh, all my travel, which, you know, as a young rail enthusiast, to keep all my travel facilities was quite important. Um, but more importantly for me now, uh, with my 50th birthday looming, they uh, said that I could um, uh, stay in the pension fund and they would backdate my pension contributions to the day I started uh, yeah. from uh, my period at university. And they would guarantee me a job in all the holidays, two grades higher than all the other students, which of course made me even more unpopular than usual. So um, that um, uh, offer was uh, snapped straight out of his hand. So uh, so I headed off um, to university, came back in the, in the holidays. But by that point, I'd already got my experience of a whole number of things, telephone inquiries, selling tickets, managing some of the basic operational stuff in the office, answering customer complaints, and letters um, and I landed in university which was quite a, a different experience for me having uh, you know had a strong interest in railways and actually done some work a lot of students of course were there straight from school and I'd had uh, a year's work experience um, and I began to broaden my interests a little bit at university so I got involved in some of the, the politics at university and I also um, got involved in the radio station and uh, was involved in running that and um i uh, i dj'd on a number of shows um so that was that was quite good fun Fantastic. yeah um so when i graduated from uh university they they, they took me back and um i did a couple of weeks doing customer correspondence but I was then asked to move in to manage uh, on a shift basis the control center we just split I know a few of the people who've come on your come on your podcast have talked about the British Rail split for OFQ which was organizing for quality and that's when we really moved away from the regions towards Network Southeast and intercity and regional railways. So the Network Southeast operation out of Paddington had a control office in Reading and the old control was in Swindon and none of the old timers really wanted to move so they had a lot of gaps in the control office so I was asked to run the control office on shift which was a bit of a risk for someone who'd been sat at their desk doing university exams four weeks mm -hmm. ago uh, but it, it sort of worked out okay um, I did have one unit that uh, ran out of fuel and I had to find a locomotive to drag it back but uh, managed to blame someone else for that so apart from that it went uh, <laughs> it went okay and um, but I, I, I'd obviously had some guidance from you know managers senior managers around me about what I should be doing and they had said for example that there really wasn't any point for me going on the management training scheme because they felt that all the jobs they'd given me in my three years of holidays at university had, had given me a lot of that knowledge and experience already. So um, 
but they did feel that um, while I looked uh, like a, a sort of a pig in the proverbial uh, uh, in my control office job, they wanted me to get uh, a bit more experience managing people. So I was encouraged. And British Rail had this, uh, I think Diane Crowther was talking a little bit about this. But in those days, people used to make suggestions, but they were slightly more than suggestions, Nina, that you um, you you were well advised to follow their advice. So uh, I moved to Slough Station as um, as a duty manager um, just before we chopped the railway up into rail track. So I, I had shift responsibility for pretty much everything that went on the station, the ticket office, but also we had um, responsibility for some aspects, what we called safety of the line. So attending things like fatalities and um, going out to... Um, operational incidents acting as a as a pilotman um which is a you know an operational term when the signaling fails where you're effectively a, a human token uh, but also trained as an emergency guard and um there, there was one uh, one saturday evening actually where the signaling failed and the guard went sick so i i worked the service and did both jobs as the pilotman and the guard, I did get a please explain on the Monday morning saying the rule, the rule book doesn't allow for you to do both jobs. I said, well, show me which page in the rule book it says that. I said, I thought it was an efficient solution to the problem. So we had one or two interesting little moments. So I did that for, I don't know, about nine months. And, and one of the fascinating things at Slough, of course, we were just down the road from Windsor and we used the Royal Train a little bit more in those days. So we used to have really regular Royal train movements, and um, that was a great opportunity for me um, to meet a number of the royal family. And British Rail was really good. You know, I think in this day and age, a lot of people are very status conscious, and they'd all sort of barge in. Um, but in those days, the senior managers all used to just leave us leave us to it. So. Um, Initially, my boss and then me, we used to just deal with it ourselves. They were private visits, but um, yeah, I had the Queen, the Duke of Edinburgh, Prince Charles, um, Princess Anne, a number of, uh, we had uh, William and Harry uh, through William and Harry's nanny, Tiggy Leg Bork, who'd had a little bit too much to drink one evening and we had to look after her. So it was quite an interesting, uh, interesting experience there uh, at Slough. And I, um, I applied for the station manager's job uh, after I'd been there for about nine months, and I got that uh, job, um, which uh, which obviously I was pleased about, and I did that mm-hmm. for uh, about two and a half years, and that took us right up to the privatisation process. Um, and Thames Trains was awarded to a, a management employee buyout with support from the Go Ahead Group, so the management team were uh, involved in that, and I was um, I was involved in that a little bit. Um, so when we when we moved into the private sector, I was asked to go up to head office to help with setting up some of the initiatives that we'd signed up to on the commercial side. Uh, and then I was given responsibility for um, station access, track access. We, we had um, quite a complicated arrangement at Paddington where Great Western, which was at the time the intercity operator, used to provide us with services. So I... Um, got rid of all that and we set up our own team um, but it was also at the point that Heathrow Express was starting uh, so um, we had to support Heathrow Express um, and I remember watching and listening to your podcast with Chris Birchall and Chris mm-hmm. talking about the startup of Heathrow and that's where I first met Chris actually when um, when he was working uh, on that and he had just come off the, um, the graduate training uh, mm-hmm. scheme 
Um, and then that job evolved um, into a more operational job. Sadly, um, Go Ahead bought all the business but decided to get rid of a lot of the, the team. So there were nine people in the commercial team. And um, by the time that reorganization had finished, I was the only one left and they asked me to move across to the operations side. Um, I found that quite difficult actually because in British Rail, things like that hadn't really happened in that way. And um, that was um, that was quite a tough experience. And you know, sometimes you read about these things, and they often say the people who sort of survive these experiences uh, in the business find it more difficult than the people uh, who've taken the money and left. Which um, which I think I can uh, I can relate to. So um, you know, a guy called Nick Ilsley who'd given me that station manager's job and been a great source of advice and and was actually great fun to work with as well. Nick Nick left. Uh, and I, I've moved across to manage uh, the control and the performance team, um, which obviously I had some experience of previously, but that was um, that was an, another big opportunity for me in, in a relatively small uh, train company at the time. I mean, we've now subsumed Thames Trains into Great Western and it's sort of distant history for some people, but at, at the time it was a separate business uh, based based in Reading. Um, and then something really, really difficult and really uh, horrible happened, which was the, the Labwick Grove uh, train accident. So my my boss as operations manager uh, was on holiday. He was in Spain and um, five past eight one morning. And again, I mean, Chris, Chris Birchall spoke uh, about this um, when he spoke to you, but we we had this horrific accident outside Paddington with a, a Thames trains and a Great Western train. Um, it was awful. 31 people lost their lives. But there was a period during the immediate aftermath where nobody could access those carriages. Nobody knew what was going on. And the press got a little bit carried away and started talking about over 100 people uh, potentially uh, dead. So um, the... The, the the whole thing was was a pretty tough experience for everybody in our business in Great Western and in uh, what was then Rail Track and of course um, I mean Great Western had had earlier experience of the um, of the Southall accident where their one of the trains had hit a freight train I'd actually been on a train out of Paddington uh, past the Southall site um, about five minutes before that accident happened and got off the train at ready to find out. And the, and the Labrook Grove incident was a train that I regularly caught up to our offices in Paddington. So that was, um, you know, I felt quite quite close to those yeah. incidents. But I, I had to sit in a room uh, in Reading with driver managers and we had to deal with some pretty tough questions like who uh, who of us is going to go and see the driver's wife and tell her what's happened and deal with that. Um, so um, very, very difficult experience. But I mean, looking back on it now, clearly I, I learned a lot from that. But in many ways, I'd, I'd rather not have learned uh, from, uh, from, uh, from that. Um, and of course, the railway is very much a, a safer place. And, you know, Southall and Lambert Grove very much uh, triggered a lot of the investment in things like train protection, um, warning systems. Um, but I, I, you know, I was given a lot of responsibility at the time. Terry Worrell, who was a fantastic guy, was the director and general manager. Terry had a wealth of experience. Terry was very much focused on responding to that incident and said to me, look, Mark, you just need to concentrate on running the rest of the 
the rest of the Thames trains business. Um, and I, I remember having to stand up and talk to the to the management team that afternoon while most of the other members of the top team were at site. Um, and, you know, that's what you're paid to do. But when you even I was 27 years old at the time and uh, uh, it's quite a it's quite a challenge. So um, yeah. I I enjoyed my time at Thames, but I decided that, you know, I'd grown up in this business and I knew it well, but I needed to do something different, really. And perhaps Ladbroke Grove was um, a signal to me to do something different. And I think as fond as I was of the operational railway, I think uh, Ladbroke Grove did take the shine off that a little bit uh, for me. So I um, applied for a job in Railtrack and headed up to um, uh Railtrack head office at the very start of 2000 and joined a team that was working on um, refranchising. Of course, we, we had a Labour government by then. We had John Prescott and we had Alistair Morton, Sir Alistair Morton, and there were all sorts of exciting things being talked about in terms of you know reopening um, routes on the Trans-Pennine, changing the franchise map, building tunnels under London and all sorts of stuff. So... I went to work on some of those projects. Um, that's actually where I, I met Diane Crowther for the first time, actually, because right. Diane was working on the Chiltern uh, Evergreen project, and I had some involvement uh, with that with her. I remember Diane and I ended up in a in a room in Marylebone with um, Adrian Shooter's corporate bankers, and we didn't have our corporate bankers with us, so we had to we had to wing it and then go back and make sure we took the corporate bankers next time. So that was fine. <laughs> An interesting um, experience. And um, I mean, Railtrack was an, in some ways a new organisation, but in some ways a very traditional organisation. I remember occasionally getting called up to the 13th floor to brief the directors. And there are all these people scurrying around in um, waistcoats and black black ties serving them lunch and um, I mean in Thames Trains we used to have to buy our own lunch and uh, even the managing director at Thames Trains went to the sandwich shop and bought his own lunch so this was a very strange uh, phenomena for me to uh, uh, encounter uh, but a fantastic learning opportunity I think I probably got more out of it than um uh, than Railtrack did if I'm honest but it was a great uh, a great experience I didn't stay there long because um <coughs> One of the one of the team who'd been involved in Thames Trains and running it was a guy called David Franks, and many people will know David. And David had got the managing director's job up in uh, Manchester for First Northwestern, and um, that business had been bought by um, by Great Western Holdings and then passed to First Group Control. But it had got into some really serious difficulty. And um, David had had to make some pretty tough decisions about how to run that business. But he didn't have um, an ops director. Uh, and he asked me, uh, he actually misled me slightly. He came to see me in London to talk about refranchising for Wales and Borders. But he admitted after about 15 minutes he wasn't really interested in that and that he'd come to um, talk to me about a job which uh, um, then went through a, a headhunter and I, and I got the job. So, I mean, that that was one of my, my big breaks. So I was 29 years old and I suddenly uh, found myself moving to Manchester to manage um, two and a half thousand staff, 307 stations as ops director, which, although we called it ops director, it was really the office delivery as well. So I met some um, fantastic uh, people up there, um, people like Catherine O'Brien who worked for me. I actually uh, uh, put Catherine into her job permanently as a general 
manager, uh, a number of other uh, great people. And we worked uh, really hard up there to sort out a lot of the issues around performance. And it was a big patch. I mean, obviously, Manchester and Liverpool, Preston were the sort of heart of it, but we ran as far south as Birmingham, up to Carlisle, Wakefield uh, in uh, Yorkshire and across North Wales to Hollyhead. So um, I spent three fantastic years there, really enjoyed it and um, uh, learnt a lot and hopefully um, improved one or two things along the way. And then I, um, something we can't do at the moment, I went to a, a conference in London and I ended up uh, sat next to Dominic Booth, um, who uh, Dominic, uh, is, I think he was on the... Diane's year on the PR graduate scheme, but he uh, uh, asked me if I'd come up to London and be operations director for the National Express businesses. So they put their London commuter talks together, uh, C2C, Silverlink and um, Wagon, and he wanted me to be ops director and manage the general managers. Uh, so that was uh, a move back to London, International Express running I don't know, probably 25, 30% of the London commuter business. Um, another another good move. I enjoyed that. Um, and I did that for a couple of years. The franchise changed shape a little bit. And um, I was going to leave, actually. Uh, Andrew Haynes had asked me to join the new First Capital Connect franchise, which took part of our business. Um, and National Express asked me to stay and said they'd give me the managing director's job. So I ended up as a managing director for um, C2C, for uh, Silverlink, and then we, we added the Gatwick Express business onto that as well. Um, but sadly, National Express lost a number of their, of their franchises through, through remapping, and Andrew uh, Haynes decided to have another go at recruiting me and was successful. <laughs> so he asked me to join him at Great Western. So we were at uh, the very start of 2008, by now. Um, and Andrew was dealing with a very difficult situation at Great Western. He was running the rail division for first and trying to run Great Western. And he asked me to go and support him. And then um, Andrew left first group later that year and uh, actually went to the Civil Aviation Authority. And uh, I was asked to uh, step up and take on the managing director's role. So um, it was uh, Big business. It had merged my my old business. I grew up in Thames Trains with yeah. the Intercity yeah. business and the regional railways business in um, Bristol and the West Country. And um, but again, it was a business with a lot of problems. It had signed a franchise agreement that contained a number of things that, quite frankly, were not deliverable or were exceptionally unpopular. And performance was rock bottom. The relationship with uh, Network Rail, as it then was, was very poor. Um, and um, I remember them publishing the list of the most overcrowded trains in the country, and uh, it came out, and all 10 of them were Great Western trains. Oh. Uh, so um, and our performance was, was really, really bad. The stakeholders were uh, very unhappy. Um, you know, members of parliament were screaming for the franchise to be removed. Um, so um, after working with Andrew, I became MD, and then, um, I've I've been there ever since, but obviously we've done quite quite a bit. Um, two years after I joined, we were we were actually awarded Train Operator uh, of the Year at the Rail Business Awards, which um, uh, you know I was really proud of to um, move the business forward. And obviously, Great Western has been recognised uh, since, and it's a very different business today, Nina. I mean, the railway's been electrified. The The customer base is, is quite different uh, in a way. There's been a real transformation both within the business and externally. And I also mentioned Heathrow Express earlier. And uh, 
you know, Heathrow Express was set up as a separate uh, organization entirely, but we've actually done a deal with the airport and we now operate Heathrow Express uh, for them. Uh, so um, all of those different sort of entities that used to run trains into Paddington are now um, in one organization and um, and I manage it, which um, I wouldn't have imagined when I was the 16-year-old that wandered into the signal box in Ready in uh, 1988. Um, and of course, my um, I mean, I, Great Western, I have been there a while, um, so I think I'm the longest-serving MD, but uh, Steve Montgomery, who's my boss, uh, did break it up for me last year, so he uh, sent me off for uh, uh, a year's sabbatical at Southwestern <laughs> Railway, so I've got that uh, on the CV as well. Yeah. I'm not sure anyone would have considered it to be a sabbatical, Mark, so I love your positive take on that. Um, and I, re I remember um, us having a chat at the railway ball, actually. So it will have been November 2019, and you telling me that you were off to um, to Southwestern in the January, but you were only going for three months, and then you'd be back. Yeah. <laughs> Clearly, Steve had other ideas. Yeah, that's right. Now, of course, and coronavirus came along as well, which did did oh. change the timings on things. But uh, yeah, no, it, I I enjoyed it actually over there. Um, it's very difficult because, I mean, a lot of people at Southwest were keen for me to stay, which was nice. So I felt I felt bad, if I'm honest, um, not not staying. But equally, I'd, I'd given commitments to people at Great Western that I would I would come back. So it's a bit like um, it's a bit like my two girls and uh, making sure I never ever say uh, to any of them that one's a favourite. So. <laughs> Absolutely, you can't do that. Mark, that, I, I have thoroughly enjoyed hearing that career story. And I think that although, you know, you've described yourself um, a couple of times in there as a rail enthusiast, what comes through to me so much as you've gone through is this, is this absolute passion for, for, for the system, for how it works, for how it all pulls together and, and what it actually delivers. Um, and and I know that uh, from talking to people who have who know you and who have worked with you, that the the people aspect of all of this is really important to you. Um, and I know there's some great stuff happening at Great Western at the moment, and has been for the last couple of years around um, the employee engagement piece and the knock on effect that that's had on the customer satisfaction numbers. So perhaps as we move forward, you might kind of give us a little bit more in terms of the, the Your Voice survey, because I think it would be, it, it certainly would fall into my category of best practice, what's happening um, in your business in that respect. But maybe that comes out in the next bit where I'm going to ask you in terms of the, um, the current state of play of the industry, Clearly, it has been an exceptionally challenging period of time uh, since the 23rd of March 2020. Um, not one that I think any of us would want to go through again. But the flip side of that is that wherever there is a crisis, there is opportunity. And, uh, and I think that we, we share this view that there are, there are definitely opportunities ahead to do things differently and perhaps reimagine the railway. What would be on your wish list, Mark, in terms of the changes that need to be made uh, and the ways that we might want to do things differently or the opportunities that are ahead? What would be the top three things on your wish list? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's, um, it's a good question. I think, you know, in terms of what we've got to achieve, I think we've got to, we've got to recover from, from where we are. 
I think we've got to think about the future. Um, and, you know, one of the things that I think is going to be uh, become a, a bigger issue once people have some confidence that the pandemic is behind us, I think, is is the environment and decarbonisation. And I think there'll be a lot of pressure on us to deliver uh, in that area. And I think, you know, we talked a little bit about my interest in, in trains. And I suppose my interest in trains has, has developed from the trains themselves to the way the trains actually impact people and I think that's probably the most fascinating thing and um, for anybody that has studied um, the history of well, the world really but in particular the UK um, you know the railways have played a massive role um, and there's a whole number of sort of towns and cities across the UK that wouldn't even exist in the sh shape they do today if it wasn't for the railway and even the fact that we we all look at the clock and um, you know you're you're in Lancashire and I'm in Oxfordshire but it's it's the same time wherever we are and that's down to the down to the railway we didn't have that before so I think we will need to rebuild the country in the widest sense as we come out of this pandemic and rail has an opportunity to play I think a really leading uh, role in that um, but I think you know the three the three wishes that I have I mean first of all around the the pandemic itself so um, you know we need to eradicate the pandemic and I think one of the things that's been really difficult I think for people in rail is and a lot of people I don't think have come to terms with it is that the the railway's used to dealing with crises of its own making. I mean, I talked about Southall and Labrook Grove, which were really tragic, but ultimately they were caused by things in, in the industry, if we're honest. And the railway industry has had other challenges like that. But, you know, we didn't cause this pandemic. And as clever as we might think we are, we're not going to fix it either. And um, we, we are in the hands of, of other people. Um, and actually, I think it's very tempting in the middle of a crisis like this to sometimes exaggerate the impact in the long run. I mean, I, I was looking the other day after the 9-11 uh, events, the awful plane crashes into the Twin Towers in New York, people did surveys and said, oh, 40% of people have said they'll never fly uh, in a plane in America ever again. Well, that's clearly not true and that's not happened. So I think we we can bounce back uh, from this. I think that's, that, so, so that's my first wish is, is to get rid of the pandemic, which everyone would share, but I think it's just important that, that it's there. I think the second thing I'm sort of talking about is, is enlightenment. And I think um, there's some of us in the railway industry who um, perhaps are a little bit stuck in our ways, protect our own um, interests, you know, whether it's uh, people in certain parts of government, people in uh, certain parts of, of the private sector, whether it's people in network rail or trade unions or um, even sort of individual user groups on certain lines, people people tend to think about the things that are immediately uh, important and historically have always been the case for them. And actually, I think we need to think about things a little bit differently in the future and how we can do some of the things people expect from us, like look after customers better, run the railway cheaper and more effectively, grasp new technology and get on with it. The railway does suffer, I think, quite a lot from not invented here syndrome, which is, you know, good ideas uh, are not always welcome if they haven't been dreamt up uh, by that particular business or that person. So I think we could all be a little bit more enlightened in in the future. Um, and then my final wish, I think, really is around that decarbonisation agenda. You know, as fond as I am of smoky, smelly, noisy diesel trains in some ways, I do know that they're not great for the 
environment. And um, I have to say, you know, I'm sick and tired of people talking about decarbonisation and not actually moving this this forward because there are some great opportunities for us quite quickly to get on and deliver this. And I think um, I think the railway industry would look a lot better to to our customers, to our stakeholders, and to the country as a whole. If if actually, I mean, we've got some reasonable environmental credentials, but I think we could do um, we could do a lot better. And people in other industries like cars and aviation are moving ahead um, faster than us. So yeah, so the, the the pandemic disappearing, an enlightenment amongst all of us, and um, uh, being able to deliver some decarbonisation. Those are three things. Lots of other things are important, and some of your speakers have spoken about them. But those are three things that I would pull out I think yeah and, and as you said I don't think anybody would disagree with you on any of those three marks and I think the that what the, your comment about decarbonisation makes brings me to um, one of my soapbox topics if you like which is as an industry we um, we're very good at talking to each other about how good we are and what an exciting industry and the stuff that's happening but I think for me decarbonisation almost falls into the same category as, as careers in the rail industry does because we're not very good at telling people outside of the sector that what a difference we can make in terms of that clean air, in terms of the environment. And whilst to some people it might be obvious, I think we've also got that image of trains, you know, creating a bit of, of muck and steam and smoke. So I think that message about how much cleaner it could be is a really important one, absolutely. So before we move on to um, to talking about a little bit more about um, your your views in terms of what you've learnt uh, from the last ten months for you personally, what are you doing differently? I wonder if you would just give us a couple of minutes, Mark, in terms of the employee engagement work that's being done at GWR, because um, I spoke to to your HR director Ruth a couple of weeks ago. And she was telling me about some really quite stunning results that you're having and the knock-on effect of having a, a, a happier team and therefore the customers feeling the benefit. Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, look, I think um, the the whole um, sort of thing from Mark Hopwood getting uh, really uh, into employee engagement, I guess, started. I mean, I'd always been conscious of those of those issues but um, when I became the managing director of C2C having previously been the, the ops director a, a the first report I think pretty much that landed on my desk was the employee engagement scores for C2C and you know C2C had brand new trains it had a lot of investment it was delivering much better punctuality and I thought you know, it ought to be in good shape um, but the it had the worst customer engagement scores in the whole of National Express, um, and I thought, you know, this this is this is terrible, really. And um, I I just cleared my diary and went out onto the route and just spent a lot of time talking to the colleagues, to the drivers, to the station staff, um, people on the trains, people in the depots. Um, not not just in the daytime, but um, you know, I. Uh, surprised them and appeared at uh, stations at six in the morning and Shubriness Depot at 10 o'clock at night. Um, and I learned an enormous amount about what was driving their views and their opinions, what they thought of certain people uh, in my organisation and in the business and what they thought about things like communication. And I worked with some great consultants 
um, in a company called MSB, uh, Don Porter and Brian Hamill, who had actually come out of British Airways and had worked in British Airways through the 1980s and addressed some similar challenges. And they gave me a great deal of support. So we put in place a plan and um, a year later, we we had the biggest improvement in employee satisfaction at CGC. So I've always taken that thing quite seriously and we've we've obviously had some challenges at great western because we've we had to close some of our maintenance depots we've been through quite a difficult um rebuilding of the route that has we've changed people's jobs from being a guard on a high-speed train shutting doors um uh, themselves to uh working on a more modern train so that change has been difficult for people but yeah i've i've been determined that we will have you know over the long term a plan to address um, engagement and we've still got a lot of work to do Nina and I don't regard this as uh, finished business by any means but um, we're um, we're currently seeing an engagement score of 87% and actually Matthew who ran the business while I was away uh, has done a fantastic job and has raised those um, those scores um, you know even uh, even higher than they were so we've we've actually managed to get people more engaged uh, with us during the um, the pandemic uh, than they were before and we're now um, delivering the sorts of results which are comparable with a lot of other sort of blue chip uh, businesses outside rail and we're significantly higher than um, the average scores in the transport sector and you know there's a lot of research being done on this isn't there about how um, people who are engaged with their business uh, will um, engage with the customer and deliver better yeah. uh, better results. And 87%, that is quite incredible um, on an engagement survey, especially bearing in mind everything that's going on. So huge congratulations to you and your team for that. It's brilliant. So in terms of learning, Mark, there's, there's lots of things changed in the last 10, 11 months. Um, obviously, the, the biggest one probably being the way that we're working um, and working from home or living from work, as uh, living at work, as, as Sir Peter Henry refers to it. Um, what have you learned? What do you think, what are the biggest things for you that you've changed personally that um, over the last 10, 11 months that have been a benefit? Yeah, um I mean, I think some of it is about how I use how I use my time and what's 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 important. I think some of the change I I hopefully see as as temporary and transitional. I mean, I've spent a lot of time working from home. I don't really intend to in the long run. I mean, that there have been, I think, as some of your other speakers have said, you know, there have been some benefits to me personally uh, from that. I've I mean, I've got uh, I've got three older children. I've got two younger. Uh, girls Coco and Heidi here and they've seen you know they've seen a lot more of their of their dad and I've I've very much enjoyed that but um you know I've not been able to get out and about in the business as much as I would like either when I was at Southwest or or here um and I do go out and about but you have to be careful Nina because um, you can't just go wandering around, you know, into offices just for fun. You know, um, there needs to be a reason for it. So that that obviously does limit one's ability to to do some stuff. So there've been some negative sides to it. I think the technology we've all probably got to grips. Um, I mean, we just started using Zoom before. The virus. 
struck in, but we weren't using it particularly well and effectively. Um, and uh, you know, this whole thing has forced us to uh, to do that. So um, I think I think there are some issues uh, that we've um, we've definitely picked up along the way and learned from. Um, but those are those are some of the changes for me in the business. I think, yeah. Yeah, yeah. We have, as you say, it's it's been um, certainly this the, the whole advent of the video call. I mean, we were using it. Um, we we used Skype quite a bit for interviews because we've um, we've brought a number of people back from overseas, back to the UK railway uh, over the last couple of years, and and my expenses budget didn't run to me mm-hmm. taking a trip to Australia to do uh, to do interviews. So we have started using it in that way, um, but it has been quite a, a revolution, hasn't it, in the last 10, 11 months? Absolutely, and, yeah. And certainly, kind of gives you a different way of using your time. Um, but I would have to say I am really, really looking forward to the day that uh, I can get back down into St Pancras Station. I'm missing, I'm missing being there. I'm missing kind of being on the train and seeing people face to face in a in a kind of in the same physical location. Absolutely. So quite excited about that. Um, so Mark, to bring this conversation to a close, and I've thoroughly enjoyed it, and I could definitely chat to you for another couple of hours at least because there's loads of things that I'd like to ask you about. But what one of the time-honoured things for Intuitive Insights podcast is to ask my guests to leave us with a quote. So something which for you um, sticks in your mind, um, helps you, inspires you. What what would be one of your favourite quotes that you can leave us with, Mark? Well, I'm going to be disobedient, Nina, I think, and just drop three in very quickly. But Gerard Fiennes <laughs> said, um, when you reorganise, you bleed. And he was a, a railway manager who wrote a book. He actually got sacked for writing a book. When I studied politics, I studied uh, a uh, guy who ran Florence in the uh, sixth, or worked for the ruler of Florence in the 16th century. He's a quite unpleasant character called Machiavelli, but he did have one or two words of wisdom. And he said, uh, he who wishes to be obeyed must know how to command, which I think is worth uh, thinking about. Obviously, it's written in a slightly sexist way, but the message hopefully says. And we were talking about... Um, in a great western and the work on employee engagement and uh, tom peters is one of the the great management gurus and uh, he said the magic formula that successful businesses have discovered is to treat customers like guests and employees like people which i think is uh, i love that i love that one mark i haven't heard that one for a while that takes me back to um my my first career, which was in banking, and my responsibility ultimately was for service. And Tom Peters was one of my gurus, and that was one of my favourite quotes. So thank you for reminding me of that. It's perfect. Mark, I knew I would enjoy this conversation. My cheeks are aching from smiling because I've enjoyed it so much. Um, a huge thank you to you for taking the time to join us and to share your story. I know it will interest and infuse and inspire people. So thank you from me to you for doing that and uh, enjoy the rest of your day. No, thanks so much, Nina. It's been uh, it's been a great experience and uh, all the best. And well done for setting these uh, podcasts up. I think they're great. So thank you. Thank you so much to Mark Hopwood for sharing his thoughts and insights. The next episode of Intuitive Insights will be with you on the 18th of March when I will be joined by Julian Edwards, Managing Director of West Midlands Trains.